the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Hounders of Canada. Today's episode, Year One Look Back and Review. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. In this episode, we're going to look back at the first year of the podcast and have a look at what some of the guests had to say and sort of the best of the best. All of my guests have been fantastic and have all had excellent things to say, but there's a few things that have stood out and really stuck with me, and I hope to share a little bit of personal reflection with what those guests had to comment on or reflect on their personal life and their experiences in the Canadian Armed Forces. Before I get into that, I want to look back at what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks. And what I've been trying to do is improve the site and improve the upload limits just so that I can produce better episodes. What I've had to do in the past is downgrade some of the audio content in order to meet my service provider's upload limits. So I've managed to toy around with the upload limits, and that gives me the opportunity to give you better episodes by being able to keep the maximum level of well, they call it bitrate, but anyhow, the maximum quality that I can put out in terms of sound and also the length of the episodes can be produced without breaking too many episodes into too many parts, such as I've had to do. So hopefully I can look forward to producing some better episodes for you to listen to, better quality, and less multiple part episodes, providing everything works out the way I expect it to. What I might be able to do if I find some extra time or spare time is go through some of the earlier episodes and bump them up in quality. That way new joiners, or if you choose to listen back on a previous episode, new joiners and people who are looking back can enjoy a higher quality episode or maybe get it done in one episode rather than parts. So hopefully this works out. Hopefully I can make this happen. I've set the conditions for success, so now it's just a matter of capitalizing on that. Now, the very first interview I'd like to reflect on comes from the very first episode. It was the moment that I realized that I had a winning formula. It was when a person like Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon from the Calgary Highlanders opened up to me and he revealed some interesting secrets or interesting personal moments right on the episode, on episode one, and it really highlighted that I was on the right path when a guest like that can just open up to me and up to you and provide you some insight about what it means to be serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. So Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon reflects on his interaction with his father, General Vernon, and how that played out. Here's the portion of the interview with Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon from episode one. Any other challenges that come to light? You know, I wouldn't say it's a it's a challenge so much as a it's a regret. And the one the only regret that I have about, and it's kind of a, a regret about journalism and the military and where they meet, would be that when when I was first starting at the CBC in the in the mid 90s, my my father was the commander of Land Force Central Area in Toronto. So he's a major general. He should have been you know, was at the top of his career. And uh, with a couple years left to go, if uh, God willing. And then at that, at that time, there's the uh, just prior to this disbandment of the Airborne Regiment, uh, you know, about which he, you know, he felt quite strongly. He was sent to Petawawa to basically see if the regiment had reformed itself. This is in 1995, and he went there on a weekend with the staff. They wrote a report. They said that you know, basically under new leadership, the regiment was not the same unit that been in Somalia that uh, you know the uh, the bad apples etc had been 
uh, purged from its ranks, and it was, you know, it was good to go. And he submitted that report on a Sunday night up the Army chain of command. And then Monday, just afternoon, the defense minister, David Colonnett, announced that basically the regiment was, uh, you know, beyond repair, and it was being disbanded by the liberal government. So at that time, you know, and I'm working at the CBC at this time as a, you know, he's a young producer following stories like this, and it followed sort of the, what had led to this. So at, at the time, it, it seemed pretty clear that to my father, I think, that the people in power hadn't even read his report. They, they'd made the decision already. Right. Now, a month later, the Bloc Quebecois gets up in the House of Commons, and they say, look, there's a, there's a third airborne video. It's, it's pretty bad, it, uh, and we want the government to, to react to this. Well, my father had mentioned this video on the first page of his report and said that it was being investigated by the military police and basically showed soldiers at a party giving each other shocks with a field telephone to see who could endure the electrical current right. uh, as they were drinking beers and stuff. You know, he said, he said it was probably pretty sophomoric, you know, something you'd see, you know, college students doing, but in light of what had happened with the airborne, it should be investigated by the military police. So on the first day in the House of Commons, the government says, no, there is no third video. On the second day that the, the, the block continues to hammer the defense minister, then it's clear they've read the report and they basically echo what my father said in his, in his report, that it was sophomoric but under investigation. And then when the block continued to press its attack uh, on the third day, I think it was a Thursday, then the government said, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's worse than we thought. We've been misled. You know, the military, some of the military has been covering this up. So that's a bit of a long preamble. I'm a, as I say, I'm a producer in Calgary at Newsworld at the time. I phoned up my father and said, I'm looking to book a guest for this story. And I didn't know that he had written that report. Do you know anybody that knows anything about what the government's talking about? And he said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. You know, I, I wrote a report, and that's what they referred to yesterday. So I said, well, would you want to come on television and, and talk about this? He said, okay, well, let me, I think, I think so. He said, I wrote the report. I can respond to it. I just need to get, you know, permission. Just let people in the chain of command know that I'm going to do it. But it's, you know, at the time, it's Thursday night in Ottawa. A lot of people are sort of heading home for a long weekend or, you know, they're, they weren't going to be there. And they weren't, they weren't available. So he, he took the decision to come on TV did a five-minute interview on News World, and basically he said, "Look, there's there's no cover-up. I wrote the report. It's in the report. I, you know, I, I submitted the report more than a month ago before the regiment was ordered disbanded. And uh, you know, nothing from one from my perspective. You know, I, it was a bit of a coup getting someone so close to the story to to come on. Unfortunately, the next day he basically got fired." from his job as the commander of Land Force Central Area for having wow. basically called out the uh, called out the liberal government about this report. And then subsequent to that, the, I mean, the Army was going through a very rough time, you know, in general. Uh, here you're called, you know, the decade of darkness. Well, right. you know, he, my father was posted to Ottawa. He basically, I think he did a, did a job there that was probably way below his abilities for about a year. And then was just basically expected to go quietly into the into the good night, and uh, and so that's what he did. So that is my only. It's not a, it's not so much a challenge, but it it's a regret. My only regret, I would say, in my in my life, you know, is that unfortunately that I was the guy that sort of made him the offer to come on TV, which ended his career. Right. And I, I mean, I've talked to him about it afterwards, and and he said, you know, in hindsight, would he do it again? And probably not, because 
you, you know, you stand up like that and you're the guy that becomes the casualty. And is, is it worth, is that what you want to fall on your sword for? Right. But at least he doesn't hold me responsible, but I, but I feel a sense of responsibility because of just how my uh, initial, my growing career, I suppose, as a journalist intersected with his, his career as a military officer. So you can see as a rookie podcaster on a brand new venture in a brand new episode how something like the revelations from Lieutenant Colonel Vernon would be essentially validation that this is a winning formula, that this is something that might stand the test of time. So anyhow, I was very grateful for the interview and for Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon opening up and revealing so much to me. The next revelation was a little bit humorous, a little bit funny, but it came from Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie. And during his interview, he revealed that he could have been in a little bit of hot water with the chain of command as a formation commander. However, he managed to dodge a bullet. Here's my interview with Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie. In terms of the most fun I had, which is a question you haven't asked, <laughs> that was when I was uh, had the privilege to be the commander of 1st Canadian Mechanized Brigade Group out west where I was essentially unsupervised with uh, 5,000 soldiers and hundreds and hundreds of vehicles and access to a variety of ammunition dumps. And uh, that was uh, an absolute hoot. And I think the soldiers of one brigade and I had a lot of fun reinvigorating some live fire skills. It's a certain amount of friction after my live fire skills because we consumed a great deal of ammunition. But Yes, almost a legendary amount, sir. Um, yes, yes. And a variety of investigations found me almost not guilty. So I think it was well worth it. I believe so. It's, it's still spoken about today. So that was an excerpt from episode four with Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie. One of the goals of the podcast I had hoped was to inject a bit of humor, and I know that that was quite a humorous part. I was very glad to have a guest who would come on and joke like that and share a good laugh. It's one thing about being in the military, you never have a shortage of sharing good laughs. I can't really have a look back at the episodes without reviewing a conversation I had with somebody who I always pause to take a moment to speak with every time I see him, and that's with WO2 Sam McGee, or QMSI Sam McGee as he prefers. He was serving with the 1st Special Service Force, or the Devil's Brigade as they became known, in the Second World War. And he reflected on a little bit of combat action that he had as well as the application of a tourniquet. And in all of that, he threw in his own personal style and his own personal way of dealing with people and dealing with situations. Here's a little bit of a reflection by WO2 Sam McGee. And some of the things I was confronted with in the force were unreal. I'm hung over from a party and I'm under arrest for desertion, if you can imagine. <laughs> I'm laying in the ditch hungover asleep and suddenly there's pow. And even under the influence... I automatically get up, head for where the sound is. Got my first aid kit, which was separate, and hung on my belt and around my head. And I dropped it at the side of the road, and I ran in the minefield. And everybody was yelling and screaming, and I ran right in, picked Joe Davis up, fireman's lift, and brought him out. And they were still squawking, and anyhow, his foot was sheared off. I did first aid on him, and it worked and saved his leg. You know, these accomplishments are unreal. I can't pinpoint anyone. I was doing first aid on Robert Lapine. I'm doing first aid on him, and the bullets hit all underneath him, and if they'd been four to six inches higher, they'd have cut him to ribbons. Six to eight inches, they'd have cut me right in half. I put his arm on his chest and said, hang on, and grabbed him like a wheelbarrow and pulled him off over the ridge. Had to go back and get my first aid equipment and finish doctoring him. 
and I shaved his arm by putting the tourniquet under the armpit and up over the, you know, that knob on the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, and it had never been done that way. And what happened was that when I called the four stretcher bearers, they started arguing with me. So I just went over and got my rifle. I said, I pointed the rifle at all four of them. I said, now you listen to what I say or I'm going to kill you if he loses this arm. You don't touch that arm until about 30 to 40 minutes from now. If you spot blood, don't touch it. It's working. If you don't spot blood, then loosen it. And just loosen it until you see blood. When you see blood, you know it's operating. Then you tighten it back up again. And I said, if you lose that arm, I'll come looking for you and kill you. I was a maniac. And I didn't care. I lived by the day. Now I pulled Joe out of the minefield with his foot off, and I'm still hung over. And we're pinned down the crossroads by these two pillboxes. Now, are you ready? My left hand calls me and says, draws two circles on the ground. He said, there's two pillboxes behind us, as you know. I said, yep. He said, there's now three people up there between these pillboxes. So uh, nobody knew of this until this moment. So he looks at me and said, and I'm just alone. He said, I want you to go up there. He said, if they're ours, you should get them out if they aren't. They're all yours. <laughs> One against three. Believe it. Private McGee. So I'm walking up the road in Filio from Alberta, laying in the ditch. He said, where are you going? I said, for a walk. He said, can I come? I said, I don't give a shit. And this is the way we were. Yep. So he gets up, joins me, and I yell back at the left hand. I said, sir. And he says, he didn't give a shit. I said, no, no, for the record, in case something happens. Are you ready? He got wounded. So anyhow, uh, walking up the road, and all of a sudden I realized that this cliff is now down to a three, four-foot uh, wall along the roadway. So I said, this road comes right in front of the pillbox. I'm not going up that way. I'm going straight up here. And I just turned to my right and went up the hill and I clawed away. And the next thing I know, I'm grabbing burnt brush, which is a sign they've, they've burnt the area in front of the pillbox. So I look and, my God, it's a monster. I'd never seen one before and I had no idea what it was. I discovered later it was part of the Magino line. Right, yes. On the Italian side, they built pillboxes. On the French side, they built forts. In the forts, the French forts, they actually had little railways to get them from point A to point B. They could stay in there 90 days with nothing in the French forts. Unreal. And here I am against this damn monster with the M1 in my hand. So I looked and, and I said, oh my God. Filio comes up and he says, so I get up to go and when there's two, you don't tell the other guy what to do. It's part of the team. If there's three, then you tell somebody who's doing what and why. I get up to walk in, and I didn't say anything to him, and the next thing I know, he's behind me walking too. Well, he's supposed to stay and watch, protect my ass, and to get the information back. So anyhow, as they get towards the pillbox, the smell would knock you over. Toiletry, you name it. And the sun was up, and Jesus, here's this monstrous pillbox, and how come they didn't open fire, I don't know. Anyhow, suddenly a grenade came out of the door, and hit the I-beam, and that was that. And in the split second, I was so fast, I turned around and I dove at Philio, knocked him down. And I don't know why to this day, but I hung on to him and dragged him over to the side of the pillbox. If you look at the pillbox, he's now over on the right side, where the soil had been worn away over the years. And that's the only protection we had. They turned around and kept throwing out the grenades, and of course it knocks you out nearly off your feet. You get groggy as hell. Anyhow, uh, they stopped, and again, with a little bit of German, I said, I'll come through for Hans Uven, come out with your hands up. 
with a little German, a little French, and that talked him into opening the door, and we got 20-some prisoners. So Filio and I were awarded the Bronze Star because in the first place we saved the three guys' lives, which were our guys. We also took out the two pillboxes, and we were able to get into position to take up our position in the line before dark. So we both received the Bronze Star. Amazing. Guess what? Filio went down and was uh, wounded. From the prisoners, we got $25 each, and we got $600 for Filio, and the other guy was foot off, Joe Davis. So they got 600 bucks each going into the hospital. I saw Joe Davis, but I never saw Filio again. Wow. We went to reunions, and our paths never crossed. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, while I was listening to that, I couldn't help but remember some of the experiences related to me by W2 Stan Edgerton. And Stan lost both of his brothers during World War II. He relates his experience at learning the news of the death of one of his brothers. It's chilling. It gives me goosebumps every time I listen to it. And it's part of the history of the Toronto Scottish Regiment, something that every member of the Toronto Scottish Regiment should know by heart. Here's a segment of my interview with W2 Stan Edgerton. And the next field over was C Company, my brother's uh, platoon, 12 platoon. And we could hear them chattering away at night, eh, firing just like we were. And then um, the next morning, this was around August the 1st, the next morning I was sleeping, and this staff sergeant, his name was Miko, he come by and he says, uh, wake up, kid. He says, uh, your brother was killed last night. We're going to bury him. Now, he, he, had, he could have said, like, I got bad news for you. Right. He was so abrupt, eh? So I grabbed my rifle and, and my, my skeleton web equipment, and I followed him, and I went down to this farmhouse, and here in the, in the yard... My brother and Corporal Shear were laid out on stretchers, and I looked at him, and on either one of them, there wasn't seen to be a mark. It was just the blast that killed them, eh, right. from the mortar. And we loaded them on the truck, and we went down the road farther to an apple orchard, and uh, that's where we buried them. And it was very short service, and uh, I counted the other regiments there at the time were killed too, eh? And I counted 18 graves. So uh, I took off back. They took me back to the farmhouse where I spent the day. And that night, I went back up to my, my platoon in a quarry. And I, was, I, I sat on top of a load of 4.2 mortar bombs and a 60 hundredweight. And I thought, geez, if this thing ever gets hit, I'll be the first Canadian in space. <laughs> so it's hard to imagine that you would end a segment like that with laughter, but Humor is one of the tools that Stan has always used to keep grounded as a result of losing both of his brothers. And Stan has always been a cheerful person, always someone to share a good laugh with. And that's something that he has used as his method of decompressing from that event, what we would currently call decompressing, much like some of our current day soldiers do as well. The main difference is Stan has never gone into the whole dark humor type aspect of humor and decompressing. And he's never been much of a sarcastic person either. So I know that some people use sarcasm and dark humor to try and decompress from an event. And whether or not that's a healthy method is up for argument or debate. That's just not Stan's style. He's more of a clean humor, upbeat type person, and a pleasure to speak to and a pleasure to meet. So I'm going to wrap up this look back by pulling out a clip that you haven't heard before. And what happens as I'm editing, there's certain tangents and the way we speak about things, we tangent off into another direction. It doesn't quite fit the format. So it ends up being recorded, but it never ends up being used. 
So this excerpt is from the interview with Sergeant Chris Murdy from 4RCR, and he speaks about the challenges that we face this year, this year 2014, with the fact that some of our soldiers have gone into the private sector they were essentially recruited because of their military skills. This is something that's not new to units, for example, in the province of Alberta, where the soldiers get attracted by companies in the oil fields and things of that nature. And here in Ontario, we're looking at soldiers being recruited by wind generation plants. And I struggled with whether or not including this, but with my previous upload limits and the structure of the show, I just wasn't able to find a home for it. So this little conversation comes from the episode with Sergeant Chris Murdy. Well, this is it, you know, and I, and I find that and it's one of those things where I have I have access to certain conversations being a full-time cadre now as an RQ. The debate about, oh, well, we need people. We don't have people showing up and this and that and the other thing. Like the, the current one right now is there's a, there's a windmill farm that's going up just north of London. Right, yes. And they hired 130-some-odd reservists. Right. And some of the units got hit hard. We lost uh, a large number of master corporals, which are our bread-and-butter leaders, right? Yeah. And while we're teaching two courses, or running two internal courses, we lost three-quarters of the staff and had to shuffle and, and accommodate and, and that sort of thing. And it's, it's been a bit of a challenge. But it, some of the other units got hit even harder. 156 field lost 30 people. That's a huge block. That's right. But it's how our leadership adapts to that situation and kind of sucks back the ambition of the training, maybe, that dictates whether or not we're actually, quote-unquote, ineffective. Yeah, that's right. right? It's, about, it's about adapting your roles to what you have. Well, the good news out of that story is that the commander of 31 Brigade and the CEO of 56 Field have authorized training for those people in that windmill farm. Yeah. So they're going to get tent groups, toboggans, snowshoes, and stuff delivered. And whenever there's downtime, they're going to form up, fall in, and they're going to conduct their training and still be functional Army reservists except for they won't be reporting to a local armory. They'll be reporting to the wind farm, and yeah. <laughs> there'll be a chain of command and a structure, and they'll have fully tasked, assigned lessons. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when you have the trained individuals within that group, I mean, when you, if you think in the numbers, 130, you've got a whole company there. That's right. Right? And if there's enough, and I'm pretty sure from all accounts that there are, when you have a mixture of combat arms, master corporals and sergeants, and, and even a couple of officers, you can actually make this work. You actually kind of harken back to the early days of the militia where you just take a whole factory, all these yes. guys, and you got supervisors and foremen, and you just train them, right? And then off they go. Unfortunately, that factory closes for a while until they hire new people. But <laughs> you have people that know each other, work as a team already, and have a hierarchy, right? Yep. It's kind of an interesting concept. <laughs> it is. Like I said, that was a piece that was never heard before. It was a conversation, a sidebar conversation that we had during the recording of that episode. And I'm glad to have found a space for it, a home for it. That's something that we're feeling the effects of even right now during the summer of 2014, where we're trying to train new privates and new master corporals up in Meaford. And we just don't have the people to do it because of their opportunities that exist for people who have experience in the military and those corporations that want to take advantage of those soldiers' skills. It's a good thing, but it's a bit of a challenge at the same time. Thank you for joining me on this look back on the year one review. Our year starts in September and finishes in June. I will come back in September with some more great episodes for you to listen to. I have two in the can right now. I have another one scheduled upcoming. 
I expect to have some interesting guests, increase the variety and increase the spectrum of who we have on as guests, get a more diverse group of Canadian Forces veterans, present and past. And interestingly enough, one of my objectives on this show is to get the future. So I've managed to capture a recording of the future. So you'll have to wait and see. You'll have to wait till September, our welcome back episode in September to find out what I mean by that. Thanks again. This is Mike Lacroix. If you want to reach me, you can reach me at MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com for any feedback or suggestions. Here comes the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry Band. And just to point out right now in 2014, the summer of 2014, the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry is celebrating their 100th birthday. And so is the Royal 22nd Regiment. Here comes the music. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.